As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. One more hug and kiss? Yeah. That's just fine. Love you, love you. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of people who are on the front lines of COVID-19, but we're like right behind them because for them to be able to go to work and um, help and be there for others, they need us. It's a backbone industry to Wisconsin's economy. Questionnaires went okay? Yep. Right. Everybody, let's see. There you go. Are you ready for some fun? Are you ready for a fun day? We thankfully had a savings account that we're using and relying on. Can we do this forever? Probably not. Weightless, high prices, and stress were likely already part of your search for childcare in Wisconsin. Then COVID-19 hit. If childcare is the key to reopening the economy, what happens when that key starts to disappear? Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. Today is, believe it or not, Thursday, October 1st. And from where we're sitting right now, Wisconsin's child care landscape is not in great shape. Amanda, you just had a story air about this last night, Wednesday night, September 30th. How did this all start? Brian, child care is an issue we've covered pretty extensively here at Fox 6. And so this started actually in 2018 and 2019 when we started looking at the shrinking number of licensed child care providers in Wisconsin. Now, before we get into that, I guess we should talk about what it means to be a licensed child care provider. So under Wisconsin law, if you want to provide care and supervision for four or more children, younger than seven, for less than 24 hours a day, generally you need a license to operate a child care center. Now, there are a lot of exceptions to that rule because if you just look at it on its face, you know, I'm one of six kids and my mom would have needed a child care license just to run her family. So it doesn't include relatives and guardians. It doesn't include like if you have a babysitter coming to your home to watch your child for less than 24 hours a day. It doesn't include public or parochial schools. But generally, if you're watching four or more children under the age of seven in a location that is not their home, you need a license to operate a child care center from the quick, state. Quick side question on that, because I don't know the answer to this. and I don't know that it's necessarily pertinent to where we're going, but does it matter if you're paid for it or is whether or not you're paid irrelevant to whether or not you are providing a, or you, that you need to be a licensed child care center? From what I've seen of the statute, it's not tied to compensation. The big thing is if you are providing care or supervision and you are doing so in a place other than the child's home. So if grandma comes to visit to watch 
you know, your six kids, she doesn't need a license to operate a child care center. But if you are sending six children to someone else's home for them to watch them or to a, a different location, that's when you would need to be licensed under the state. And that licensing is how the state comes in, does inspections, makes sure that different safety measures are being met. And so that's why that's something that's really emphasized in the state of Wisconsin. So when we started looking at the numbers, we noticed some pretty significant drops. So in 2010, Wisconsin was hovering right around 9,000 total licensed child care providers. By 2015, that number had dropped down to right around 6,000. And then now we're at 4,495. And that number, you know, tends to fluctuate depending on when you're looking at them. But from the most recent data we've seen, that's where we are. So when you look at compared to a decade ago, the number of licensed child care providers in Wisconsin has almost cut in half. And And that's even pre-COVID. Why is that? I mean, before you bring in the pandemic and, and its effects, why has there been such a dramatic decrease in the number of licensed providers? It's an issue in Wisconsin, but really it's an issue that states all over the country are grappling with. And what we've found out is a lot of it comes down to the fact that operating a child care center is not a particularly lucrative business. Your profits tend to be razor thin. And I know when I say this, this is confusing for a lot of parents. It was confusing for me at first. I pay for child care. And in Wisconsin, if you're paying for an infant spot especially, you are paying a lot of money. If you are paying for infant center care. Like sending your kid to Harvard. Yeah, yeah. You are likely you are likely paying more than in-state college tuition. Um, I know a lot of people who are paying anywhere between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars a year for one child to be in infant child care. And this is just normal daycare. This isn't one of those places that's saying they're gonna teach your kid to read by the time they're six months old. So Looking at that, you go, how are they not making a bunch of money? When you look at the finances, when you look at where that money is going, a lot of it goes back into meeting those state regulations. So, for example, there are strict uh, student-to-teacher ratios for child care. In an infant room, for example, you can only have four infants to every one teacher. And if you've ever been around an infant, you know why that rule exists. Infants require a lot of time and attention. But if you only have four infants to every one teacher, you're not making a lot of money on your infant room. You need your older kid rooms where you can have more students to kind of make up for that. So the different providers I talked to, they said if they have a class of 18 students, if they're doing really well, Numbers 16, 17, and 18 will be their profit. That's it. They also often have to pay rent, utilities. Before COVID, there were already a lot of cleaning expenses. And now after COVID, that's gone up. There's insurance. You know, now they're also paying for equipment. So there's an an PPE. So there's a lot that goes into this. So the, the profit margins are already razor thin. So that well, is Well, and my guess my guess is the salaries for, for in many of these uh, facilities that are licensed they're not just hiring grandma to watch your kids. They're hiring someone with a certain level of education uh, and training in in that and they're going to expect a certain 
uh, amount of pay to do that job. So I've got to think that personnel is a pretty significant cost there. It is, but the people who are doing this work are not paid a whole lot. So you have highly qualified people. I believe when, when I talked to the Wisconsin Early Childhood Association, they said, you know, if you have an associate's degree in Wisconsin, you can expect to make, you know, right around $18, $19, maybe $20 an hour. If you are, if you have an associate's degree and you're working in early childhood education, you're going to make 10 11 maybe $12 an hour. And that's because you have to have a lot of staff in order to meet those ratios. And, and I'm talking about center care here. So now you have all of these qualifications and you're making fast food pay. Exactly. So as a result, there's high turnover, high burnout in this industry. It costs money if you have high turnover and high burnout. You're trying to bring staff on board. If you can't bring more staff on board, you can't have more children at your center. So it basically just becomes this kind of death spiral, really, because you can't feed into the problem because you don't have the money and then you can't make more money in order to solve the problem. So you have these highly qualified people who aren't making a lot of money because staff salaries can really be the only variable sometimes if you're the one running the child care center, right? Your rent isn't going to change. Your utilities, your insurance, you, you can't really control that. The only place you have a little wiggle room is the staff salaries. So if the profit margins were already challenging and making the numbers work was difficult before, I've got to imagine it's only astronomically more difficult now that we're in the midst of a pandemic. Yes. So when the pandemic hits, most child care providers had to at least temporarily close. Some of them, it was just for a couple weeks so they could regroup. Some of them, it was closer to two and a half months. And this is an interesting problem because it, it comes from a bunch of different directions. So at first, when the pandemic hits, parents are pulling their child out of their child care. They're keeping them home. Everyone's trying to stay safe. Um, in some cases, parents are working from home. In some cases, parents are losing their jobs. So you see these child care providers losing their enrollment. As things go on and as child care providers develop these safety measures, which by and far appear to be working, they're doing temperature checks at the door, they are um, limiting the number of people who can go in their buildings. Often now parents can't go in the buildings. It's just the providers and the children. They're not intermingling class uh, staff. They're all wearing masks. They have all these different measures. And the providers we're talking to have said they've managed to keep COVID at bay. I know the center that I send my daughter to, they haven't had a single positive case yet. And they've been up and running since the beginning of June. Side note, I'm guessing these protocols have actually helped keep a lot of the usual Petri dish type stuff that happens at daycares at bay because they're keeping COVID out as well. Correct. They a, A lot of the providers are telling me they've actually seen less illness because if, if a kid has a runny nose and a temperature at the door, they're going home. And even if it's not related to COVID, they're then not spreading it to everyone else. So in some cases, the argument is that kids are actually healthier now in this, in this post-COVID world. So 
Of course, implementing all of these procedures costs a lot of money. You have parents who are ready to send their kids back. You have some parents who aren't ready to send their kids back. Maybe they're still out of a job. Maybe they're still working from home. Maybe they've uh, discovered alternative arrangements. My husband and I dropped our daughter down to part-time instead of full-time because that was just what worked for our family. In addition to that, you have providers who say they also have to deliberately keep their capacities low. In some cases, that's because they have a municipal requirement uh, to halt the spread of COVID. In some cases, it's a choice uh, for the provider because they're going, okay, if I operate at 50% capacity, it's going to hurt my bottom line, but it's going to hurt my bottom line worse if we have a COVID outbreak and we have to totally close. So because of that, we're in this weird situation where providers are not operating at full capacity, which means their revenues are way down. We're lucky to break even. We thankfully had a savings account that we're using and relying on. It feels bad, especially when they call and they're they're panicked about needing something, you know, immediately or in the next couple weeks. And I just I don't foresee anything opening up. Well, and, and, and I'm guessing there's one way to sort of soften that blow a little bit, which is since personnel is the greatest cost. If you have fewer students because of COVID-19 and you're restricting, you probably end up having to have fewer staff. Doesn't help the people working in the industry uh, as child care providers. But I'm guessing there's some savings, but that you, you can't save on the overhead. You can't save on the lights and you can't save on the other bills. So there's a certain amount of cost you just can't recover. Well, and in some cases, they're actually keeping the same amount of staff, even though they have lower capacity. And that's because they're breaking up classes into smaller groups for COVID safety. So you need more, those same staff members to, to staff those additional rooms. Exactly. And then we run into a problem where you have some providers making the business decision you know what, I can't offer infant care. Because if we're talking center-based child care, and that's what this particular story focused on, although I want to get into other kinds of child care in a few minutes. If you're talking center-based child care, those rooms, like we talked about with the older kids and where your ratios are, are much easier on your pocketbook, they make up for how costly it is to have the infant room. Well, in this landscape now, You have providers, uh, some of whom are saying, I can't afford to offer infant care. I'm better off sticking with the older kids, partnering with local school districts who are operating virtually and saying, hey, you can send the kids here to learn virtually if the parents need someone to watch their kids. That's going to help them stay afloat more. Well, the result of that is if you are looking for child care right now and the concern is if you're looking for child care six months from now what does that landscape look like so we got some data from the department of children and families and that data is always a snapshot in time it's very fluid because the situation changes with providers every day but as of the end of summer of the child care providers that were open 39 percent had zero available slots for any age 59 percent had zero available slots for children younger than two. Those are those infant spots that we're talking about. So if you're looking for childcare for your infant before you were already dealing with maybe more than a year-long waiting list at many places, there was already a shortage because this already is an industry with razor-thin profit margins. You were already going to be paying 
quite a bit of money, often more than $350 a week for that infant spot. And Economics 101 would tell us as this supply of available slots shrinks and the demand uh, continues or even goes up as people come back to work, that's going to result in one thing. Prices are going to be driven up. Yeah, well, the providers we talked to said they've already had to raise tuition more than they would like, in some cases 5%, and they're still operating at a loss. Uh, Cheryl Peters, one of the providers we talked to who runs Glendale Heights Child Care, her revenue's down 40%. Her center's operating at half capacity, and she she had to raise tuition, and she still says this is not a tenable situation. This is not something that can go on forever. So one of the things we wanted to look into was, okay, well, you know, the natural follow-up question is, what can be done, and it, it turns out the answer is a lot more complicated than people think. Well, and I want to, you mentioned that you want to talk about be going beyond just the facility-type daycare, because obviously that's not the only place people send their kids. A lot of people all across the state of Wisconsin use in-home providers. Some are lucky enough to maybe have a relative or family member who can come watch the kids. Many don't. And, and for those who don't, in-home daycare providers um, are, are a, a, a the way to go for, for many. Some of those are licensed. Many of those are not. What is the landscape like in the in-home side of things? Yeah. So there are three different categories for state licensed child care. So you have the licensed group child care centers, and that's what we've been talking about mostly with the story. So that's those are people who are providing care for nine or more children. They're usually located somewhere other than someone's home, um, and they can really vary in size. Then you have the licensed day camps. So those are like the seasonal programs. That's for four or more children, three years and older. Then we have the licensed family child care providers, and those provide care for between four and eight children. This care is usually in the provider's home. And when you talk to the Department of Children and Families Secretary, Emily Amundsen, this is what she is most concerned about. Because when you look at the drop in child care providers, the largest drop is the people who are providing that family care between four and eight children out of their own homes. And she believes, especially as you talk about the communities that are child care deserts, essentially communities that have way fewer child care slots than they do children in their zip codes, she believes that unlocking the ability to have more of that family care it can really help solve the problem. The issue, of course, is that you don't have the same leeway that center-based care. So remember, if you're running a, a big child care center, your older rooms can help make up for the loss um, or the expense of the younger rooms. If you're watching four to eight children out of your home, you don't have that same flexibility. And now with COVID, I talked to some providers over the phone who operate out of their homes and, you know, look, my husband is in the at-risk category. I just can't risk reopening. Or I tried to reopen and then my husband got COVID. So then I got COVID and we had to shut down and we can't, we just can't afford to keep shutting down. So one little thing that goes wrong can be far more detrimental if you are providing that licensed care out of your home. And that's why... Well, and I why wonder, because you're, you're still talking about licensed care in these family home settings. Uh, it does, does Do those concerns and those expenses and other things, do they threaten to drive more people into conducting 
unregulated, unlicensed care. We, we know what the law says. The law says four or more kids who are not related to you, you've got to be licensed. We also know there are a lot of people who push those limits or maybe uh, go beyond those limits. There are a lot of un unregulated, unlicensed home childcare uh, settings going on right now. And in many ways, it's for people who can't afford a licensed slot and have no other options. Are we seeing? Are you seeing a, a migration to that? Is that part of the concern? The hard thing is that's difficult to track, right? Because DCF can go into a, a licensed provider and know they're operating. But that is a concern that the secretary shared with me. And and she pointed out, look, there are, you know, there. it's not to say that everyone who isn't licensed is going to be bad at caring for a child. If grandma's coming in to take care of your kid, that could be very good care. But if someone is watching four to eight children, even more than that in their home, and you don't have someone watching to say, okay, are you following the right ratios? Are you following the right safety requirements? That's where someone can get hurt. So we had done a story uh, a while back about an unlicensed provider, and we had shown an example of, of a different unlicensed provider who basically when people went into her home, I mean, kids were sleeping in the basement. There were fire hazards everywhere. That's not to say that that's the case for every unlicensed provider. But when you're desperate and you need you need to go to work and you need someone to watch your child and you can't afford or find a licensed option, parents are going to do what they feel like they have to do. And, and that is a concern. And the concern is that if these safety standards slip, what effect does that have on our children if, if we don't know what's going on and where? We haven't seen it on the air yet. You know, we will in the coming week. I have a story about an unlicensed child care provider operating illegally in, uh, in the Milwaukee area who um, it turned out was lying about her identity. And we're going to find out more about that coming up next week. But it's but when I talked to the parents, uh, some of whom had been sending their kids there for a year or two, even though they had some questions, they thought the provider herself was unusual, told tall tales, had some oddities, but they kept sending their kids there because otherwise they felt she was a nice woman who, church-going woman who gave uh, adequate care. The main reason they went there is because, number one, she had open slots. Number two, she was cheaper. She was significantly cheaper than a licensed facility, and, and they were having a difficult time finding openings. I mean, the parents I talked to were paying in the area of maybe $25 per child per week. That is significantly less than they would pay in a licensed uh, facility, particularly if it was uh, a, you know a fixed facility like a commercial building that we've been talking about. But even a licensed family home, that's going to be cheaper than they would. So the economics are going to drive that. And I'm just wondering, as we look big picture, if it is getting harder and harder to to make the numbers work for these licensed facilities and more and more of them close down, does that drive more people into this sort of unregulated space where you could have these hazards? And that, and that's the concern, and especially the the need for childcare isn't going away. I, I was looking through some federal data. And uh, the numbers from the most recent numbers I could find were from 2017. But as of 2017, of the households in the United States uh, that have, you know, married parents with children, 61% have both parents working. 
So this isn't, there's all, whenever I do a story like this, there's always a, a troll who comes out of the woodwork who says, you shouldn't send your kids to childcare anyway. You should take care of your own kids. The way our economy works, specifically in Wisconsin, where you do have a high number of households in which uh, either the one parent or both parents are, need to be working, that's just the way our economy works now. We need childcare. And so when those options shrink, and when parents get outpriced out of quality licensed care, that there is a real concern about what's going to happen next. Now, the tricky thing is whenever you talk about solutions, a lot of times it comes down to funding. So roughly 80 million CARES Act dollars have already gone to Wisconsin's childcare industry. And when you see that, you go, wow, that sounds like a lot. Okay, they've already gotten kind of a shot in the arm. Well, the Wisconsin Early Childhood Association estimates that that $80 million only covered 14 weeks of Wisconsin's child care expenses. It's been 28 since things shut down and child care providers had to change how they operate. Many of them were, couldn't take on new students or any students for as many as 11 weeks. Now, several have been able to cobble together grants, uh low interest loans, you know, they're they're doing what they can to scrape by, but we don't know how long they're going to need to operate at this new normal with lower capacities, with higher cleaning expenses, uh, with the, the way these staff to student ratios are going. So well, I just did I just did some real quick math as you were talking right there, Amanda. Eighty million dollars in and I went on the low side, but if there are four four thousand licensed providers in the state that's $20,000 per provider, which is roughly about what, what one child care slot for a year might be. For an infant, maybe. That's that's going to help a little bit, but it's certainly not going to make up for the loss of multiple slots because they have to reduce their class sizes. It, it, it's a boost, but it's, it's not solving the mathematical problem. Exactly. And this is where Elizabeth Warren, you might remember, had received some attention because she had a... Uh, a plan that would, I mean, it would drastically reimagine how childcare worked in the United States, uh, where it would set up more of a system. Because right now we don't really have a system. We have individual providers who are kind of going at it alone, they feel like a lot of times. Now, if you look at the pushes at the federal level to get more stimulus money, if if you'll call it, you know, money um, that would be as a result of COVID-19, those pushes to get more money to the childcare industry are stalled in Congress. So that leaves any reimagining of childcare up to the states. There's a lot of skepticism that Wisconsin will be able to totally restructure its childcare in this next budget, but Wisconsin Early Childhood Association is asking in this next budget for $60 million a year for what they call a child care stabilization fund. And then they also want to increase Wisconsin's subsidies um, for people who have a, a hard time affording child care. So right now, the subsidies can apply to people who make 185% of the poverty level, and they want to bump that to 200% of the poverty level. Even that's going to be a heavy lift. Um, that's That's a lot of money. Well, when you talk about reimagining, I mean, obviously, funding shots in the arm, you know, the child care industry is is by far not the only one looking to the government and saying, hey, we need another shot in the arm. There's a lot of industries that are hurting right now. And and so that, that's one avenue. But when you talk about reimagining child care beyond 
a funding boost, what does that mean? Well, there are people who have basically argued that child we should think about child care the way we think about the rest of education and essentially make it part of the public school system, right, where it's totally tax-funded, um, or even do a hybrid of it where it's mostly tax funded and then, um, you know, partially it's uh, parents paying maybe a small fee. That, of course, is easy to talk about. It's a lot harder to do. And there is a concern amongst people in early childhood education that that can really lead to, um, I don't I don't know how to say this, but take away some of those important parts of early childhood, right? So we talk about how there's a lot of pressure now on kindergartners um, to to be doing all this classwork. There are a lot of complaints that they're not getting as much play as they should be at that age because that's an important part for learning. There's a concern that if we make early childhood education part of the public school system, that that will happen at a younger and younger age where you're actually taking away some of the developmentally appropriate things that they're doing in a child care center. So it, it's definitely a tricky conversation. It's changed dramatically just in my own lifetime. I and mean, when I was going to kindergarten, there was no such thing as 4K or, or 3K. I mean, certainly there were daycares, but they weren't viewed as educational institutions in the way that we now see people going younger and younger. And I can see that idea of essentially uh, making early childhood or childcare, daycare for infants and toddlers, part of a public school system would become a very big political hot potato because now you're already you're getting back into those entrenched interests of public schools versus private schools and education and things like that. So I think that would enter a difficult area, but it does raise that question of if the system we have right now isn't working, what do we do? Right. And I and think there certainly are questions right now about this system right now, especially with the challenges COVID has raised, uh, leaves us in a position where if we have two parent working families, their kids have to go somewhere. And what's what's the best system for making that happen? Uh, it sounds like that is at least one solution that's being proposed. Does it does it seem realistic? I guess. Yeah, and I mean, it, when I, when I talked to Wisconsin Early Childhood Education Association, they said, "Look, asking for the sixty million dollar a year stabilization fund is all and an increase in subsidies." that's already going to be a heavy lift. They're optimistic that there's more of an appetite to do that now because COVID-19 has brought about a recognition that childcare isn't just another industry. It really is the key to reopening the economy because you can't go back to work if you don't have anywhere to send your kids. So that's something that they think they might be able to do, but even that $60 million a year, and remember, $80 million only covered 14 weeks of expenses. So $60 million is a drop in the bucket, but it, they believe it's an important drop in the bucket. So that's kind of, in Wisconsin at least, where the effort is focused on now. But there's a national conversation going on right now about how child care operates. Advocates say, advocates for change say that, you know, right now it's really built on the backs of working parents who can't afford it. And even that expensive check isn't expensive enough for the providers. And not only are we losing providers, um, because Wisconsin Department of Children and Families estimates that 10%, so that's roughly 400 providers, are still closed. And they're trying to get them back open. But we also need new providers to be opening up. And with the way the current landscape is, it's not exactly a great environment for new providers to be starting. And that's what we need. Remember, 10 years ago, we had 9,000. And now we're, we're trying really hard to, to keep 
to get back up to 4,495 that are open. And even that's a struggle. Well, certainly uh, for many families, I'm sure the discussion has been taking place about doing the math and saying, do we have both parents work? Does one stay home? Does it make more sense if the costs keep going up? But there are for many, many families, that's just not an option. Both parents have to work, and if the job is there, they need to go. Their kid has to go somewhere. The question is, will their child be going somewhere that is safe and and that uh, is, is trustworthy? And obviously, the economics of that are, are a huge question. This is an issue I'm sure you're going to continue to be covering for a long time to come. And as we said, next week, we'll have uh, sort of a cautionary tale about what happens when um, there is unregulated care and parents who don't feel like they have another choice. Um, it can go wrong. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean something bad happens to a child. Sometimes that does. But it certainly means there may be questions about, you know, are you sending your kid to someone you know, someone you can trust to a safe place? It's a huge issue, Amanda, and uh, we appreciate you staying on top of it. And I know we, we look to hear a lot more. Any parting thoughts on this before we, we wrap up this, this episode? You know, I, I did the math once. And if I were a single mom, it would be cheaper for me to stay home and and watch my daughter and uh, essentially live on government assistance than it would be for me to work full-time and pay for an infant spot at a child care center. And doing that math was really sobering. And I, I mean, I, I consider my family in a, in a position of privilege, right? Like even though writing that check every month is painful, we're able to do it. And we have a, a lot of people who aren't able to do that and are trying to work and want to work. And I just, I don't know what's going to happen to our economy if they have nowhere available or affordable to send their children. It's not just happening in Wisconsin. It's happening everywhere. In fact, in Wisconsin, we've allocated more CARES Act dollars to child care than other states necessarily have because some, some of that money, it, it was you know discretionary about where it could go. So I think that that's just something to keep in mind. Even if this is an issue that doesn't directly affect you right now, it does affect your economy. It affects your work environment when everyone else is is struggling with this issue and it is something that that affects a, a large number of people in our very own communities uh, we're going to obviously as always continue bringing you these twice weekly episodes of open record and i know this is a topic that people have opinions about and i'm guessing we have listeners right now who've probably been yelling things at their radio as they listen to this or at their their phone or other <laughs> device radio, or whatever it might Brian. be. I said radio. I know. I think of it listening in the car, with although I'm using my phone. But you, you, whatever device you're listening to us on, you have opinions, you have thoughts. We want to hear them. Good or bad, if you have suggestions, if you have questions, uh, send them our way. Our email address is fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. And you don't have to be as old as me and call it the radio. You can call <laughs> it whatever you want. Uh, do send us that email and, uh, and we want to hear from you. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.